At the time, I wasn't thinking of it as, quote, user experience. Yeah. Uh, even though, like you said, it was on any number of levels. Companies are doing things, putting products on the market. Customers are learning about those products, maybe, hopefully, purchasing those products, using those, those products. Based on those user companies are thinking about the next thing to do. And you get this interesting dynamic mix-up of yeah. what customers, users, companies are doing. And then you have companies that are simultaneously trying to figure out what their strategy is going to be for the next thing. Welcome to the Nexus People podcast, an exploration of the local UX community. Welcome to the Nexus People podcast. My name is Ben Watson. I'm a professor in computer science. And I'm Ariana Ewan. I'm a master's student in animation. And today we're talking with John Bullman. You want to introduce yourself, John? Yeah, John Bullman. I'm a professor of marketing and innovation in the Poole College of Management here at NC State University. I've been here about uh, 10 years. Great. So, John, as I was saying earlier, you've been pretty good at keeping your personal life off the internet. So I really don't know much about you before Purdue. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I would guess that you're from the Midwest. I, I am. Uh, grew up in uh, Indiana, and Purdue is where I started my, uh, say, professor uh, career. Yeah. Uh, after uh, graduating from MIT Sloan School, and so Purdue was my first professor job, and then I was there a few years, and then to Michigan State, and then uh, and then here. So NC State's kind of my third. Uh, yeah, but professor you were, you're also an undergrad. But I, well, right, so I did, so before that I, I was in engineering, actually, yeah. aerospace engineering. And so I did BS and MS in aerospace engineering at Purdue. So it was a little strange years later to go back as yeah. a faculty member in a different, uh, you know, different department, you know, the, the college yeah. of management instead of engineering. So that was a little bit odd, <laughs> a little bit of a transition uh, there. But uh, yeah, it worked... Um, in the aerospace industry uh, for a number of years after I finished studying that at, at Purdue. Uh, worked at General Dynamics uh, down in Fort Worth, Texas, which is now part of Lockheed, uh, Lockheed Martin. Oh, okay. And, uh, and also a little bit of time at NASA yep. uh, as well. Um, so I now was all in aerospace. It was uh, aerodynamics and structural design and some advanced projects. So, you know, pretty cool. Yeah. Did you always know that you wanted to be an engineer? Is that what you were thinking at the time? Well, yeah, in high school, you know, me, math is always something I yeah. was interested in and, and, and sciences as well. And I liked aviation. I had some family members that were pilots and, oh. and in a- aviation. So it was just kind of always, yeah. you know, something top of mind, if you will. And so yeah. you just kind of combine all those things and it's, you know aerospace engineering basically and Purdue has one of the best programs in the country I would believe that for yeah. that so I didn't have to go out of state I could you know go up to uh, to Purdue and enjoy that so yeah and then uh, you went to work like you say at NASA and General Dynamics mm-hmm. was General Dynamics in Indiana or NASA uh, well NASA the the NASA stint was in uh, Hampton Virginia. Virginia. So, it's not the, so far, Langley right? Langley yeah. Research Center. Pretty far. And um, yeah, well, it's you know, 
eight, ten hour drive. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, General Dynamics is in Fort Worth, Texas, so that was a bit. Is of that a, how TCU happened? I was yeah. About so that. when I did my MBA part time while I was working there at General Dynamics, right? So that was there in Fort Worth. What brought this sort of the big turn? Toward management. Yeah, I think uh, I, I've never gotten that question before. No, they, <laughs> I get that all the time. Um, yeah, Wait, I are think, you an outlier here? Yeah. Everybody. Well, starts I don't management? know. I mean, my engineering process would always, you know, tease me and tease people that would, you know, abandon quote unquote abandon engineering and go into law or something else. Yeah. Um, you know, going over to the dark side is, is what they would say. And um, but I think in engineering, you know, what I tried to do was kind of keep broadening that out or be a little bit more multidisciplinary huh. from, from the engineering perspective, mm-hmm. right? So not just doing, say, structures. You're not just doing fluid mechanics or not just doing control systems. So really trying to kind of bring some of that together mm-hmm. and do that in the engineering design setting. So in my case, airplane design, aircraft yeah. design. And doing that kind of in the early stages of the process as well. And so I would be working on stuff, you know, 20 years out, 30 years out, stuff I still can't tell you about, right? Um, <laughs> and so the cliche goes. And as interesting as that was, I, I think what um, always piqued my interest was even before I saw a, a new concept or, or a, the beginnings of a new design, somebody else had already done some work on it. Mm-hmm. And the work they had done was kind of, you know, if you will, formulating the business case. If we design something like this, we think these customers right. would be interested in it. And I was doing, you know, defense industry stuff, so we had a customer one, yes. United States government, basically. Um, but you know, somebody was still trying to think of that of, of that business case or that business model for it, right. even even before I saw it. And so, you know, partly out of interest, partly out of uh, something to do at some levels, partly out of is the company benefit. I may as well take advantage of it. Um, I did uh, started doing MBA uh, studies part time and finished up with that. And it's like okay, I think you know it's time to kind of think about transitioning if I'm going to do that. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of um, going on and getting a PhD or even getting into a university setting if that's something that I really. Mm-hmm. Uh, decided to do, uh, so I told myself, "Well, I can I can take this product development, product design, and put it into a a business setting, if you will." And um, so I just applied to a few different programs, and I told myself, "If they accept me, I'll go, and if they don't, I'll just stay in engineering and well, you know do a, a PhD." Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I had yeah, we were doing work with some aerospace engineering people at MIT. Okay, and uh, the. You know, it would come up, you know, why don't you come here and do your PhD in that? So maybe I would have gone to MIT anyway, I don't oh. know. But, um, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a small community, almost like management is and other fields, right? It's kind of like a small community. And everybody kind of knows everybody. In, aeronautics? In aerospace, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, at least in certain fields that you're mm-hmm. working in uh, or subspecialties, if you will. Um, yeah, so the opportunity came to go over to Sloan School. And I said, well, I'll just go do it. I looked at your a little bit at your dissertation. You did. You yes. found it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting. So, you know, in my class, I teach a little bit about the technology acceptance model. Right. Um, which is, for those who may not know, about um, trying to understand and maybe a 
to some degree predict when people will accept a new technology or organizations will. Mm -hmm. And um, folk, they focused, the original version at least, focused on perceived usefulness and perceived usability or ease of use. And um, your work uh, wasn't necessarily about technology per se, it was more about products, right? right? But it had an interesting angle which seemed to be about the social factors. Mm -hmm. So what made you think of that? That's yeah. a pretty unusual thing for an engineer or an atypical. Well, and even even somebody in say marketing and product development to kind of do a, a group decision, yeah, focused uh, approach to some of your research and some of your studies is I don't want to say unusual, but it's not it's, it's less common than a yeah. lot of other things that that people are involved with in researching. Yeah, so I started to dive into the group decision making, like you said, kind of in the context of. You know, do we buy or not buy at, right. you know, at a very basic sense? Um, if it's for a, more of a technology product or a high-tech product, then, then yeah, you have some of those kinds of early adoption issues that mm -hmm. are on top of that as well. But really just trying to dive into how, in a, in a group setting, how the decision process comes together that ultimately leads to a decision or an outcome, mm -hmm. right? And it's and, almost always a group in some sense. Well, right? exactly. And, yeah. and when, you, when you think about it, it, it really is. My work was a little bit on family decision-making, okay. a little bit on, uh, say, B2B uh -huh. uh, or organizational decision-making. So it had some of both. And if you're trying to, to model it and kind of understand what some of the underlying processes are, then I think it's helpful to study both. But, but the idea was to uh, you know, kind of see if we could learn something from social psychology, and I'm not pretending to be a social psychologist right. or anything like that, but there's a, a lot of those uh, behavioral aspects or social decision-making mm -hmm. aspects that are helpful um, as you kind of share opinions and preferences, and I think we should do this and not do that and so forth. There's a, there's a lot of dynamics that, that goes, uh, mm -hmm. goes on with respect to that. And so it's something that we were able to, kind of research and, and package and uh, learn a little bit about uh, preferences and how we kind of take our preferences and apply it into a particular decision uh, setting. And that obviously has a lot of applications to not just technology adoption, but I like this and I don't like this, or this website is really great, or this mm -hmm. customer experience that, that I'm having is good or not so good, and do I go back to it even if I had a bad experience? And you know, right. all these things come together in relevant business issues like satisfaction and customer loyalty and those kinds of things that, that right. we tend to care about yeah. <laughs> in, as businesses or as marketing people, both in consumer products and B2B products. It's really interesting because, you know, it doesn't sound like when I think of uh, management, when, and I would imagine that most people think of management, it sounds like a user experience study, like you were talking to families, trying to understand their preferences, their expectations, maybe doing surveys and interviews. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> at the time, I wasn't thinking of it as, quote, user experience. Yeah. Um, even though, like you said, it was on any number of levels. And the work I've done since then, over the last 20 plus years, I've been in management school, faculty settings. It is kind of two different things. Part of it is the, the company's perspective. So we're in the process of developing new products or deciding what new products to, to build or whether or not we should enter this market or not enter that market. How quickly do we enter a market? So all this kind of, both from a process perspective, so like mm -hmm. new product development, 
processes. I do some research on that. Also from the strategy perspective, strategically, what should we do as a, as a company and not do as a company? So some of those strategic issues, that's, so that's one side. The other side is from the user's perspective or the customer's perspective. You know, decision-making, adoption. So I've done some innovation mm-hmm. adoption or technology adoption work, uh, for example. And so I think it's both interesting <laughs> to me, keeps my interest level up, but also relevant, highly relevant to be able to think about both sides of that equation. You get this interesting dynamic mix-up of mm-hmm. what customers, users, companies are doing as as purchasers or users of products uh, or and services. And then you have companies that are simultaneously trying to figure out what their strategy is going to be for the next thing or their investment strategy is going to be for new technologies, for example. And kind of a win-win, right? You provide something that's beneficial to customers and users, and the company gets strategic value, competitive value out of that as well. Um, It's it's just, I I think, so imperative to to have that user consideration in that whole innovation process, uh, if you will. Um, Otherwise, you're just going to miss the mark, or you're going to spend a lot of money churning out something that just isn't, you know, going to going to go anywhere and so so at the time at the time it, it was like you know i don't really know what ux yeah. is or any, you know but uh yeah i think the more you get into how do we innovate better and over the years uh especially here at, at nc state i've been fortunate to be able to work with some uh some design colleagues and mm-hmm. design faculty and and uh, learn more and more and more about that do you think that um, the sort of recommendations for companies or product ma- uh, manufacturers from your dissertation are very different from those that maybe one of your more recent publications is about understanding um, the social structure of your consumers and targeting, you wrote a paper about using agent-based modeling to simulate mm-hmm. those people. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that those recommendations are different from those back then like a company what does it have more information available to it than it used to or um yeah well it's yeah that's 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 a really good question because you know as you know it's just a very rich complex yeah um you know anytime you're trying to dive into a user's yeah preference Structure, yeah. the social structure that inf- you know influences them. It just gets very complex very very quickly. That's part of the reason a lot of people don't research, yes. say group decision making yeah. or group level uh, dynamics, just because it's so, uh, so so complex. And so I, I, I think if we can, you know, study it and be able to still come up with uh, a few of the key drivers or discover some of the key drivers, I think that helps us. You encounter all these fairly common situations, for example, of, you know, if there's five of us in in a room trying to decide between A and B and C, three of us may think A and two of us may think B, but as a group, after we discuss it, we may decide on C. Right. And, you know, most of the time when you get, say, models or mathematics applied to, okay, three times A plus two times B (laughs) is never, ever going to equal C. Yeah. Right, but you still see situations like that, and it's kind of an extreme example, but it illustrates the point. You, you get these kind of extreme examples where people are kind of going outside the range of, of where they're where they're starting from, right? So deciding with C when 
at the beginning were just you know split between A and B. I mean, you just would never necessarily think think that would happen. So, so what what's driving that at a fundamental uh, issue? And when we studied it, it, it seemed to come across as as expectations and the so mismatch of expectations, yeah. if you will, right? Yeah. So one and, person maybe finds that it doesn't fit, meet their expectations. Yeah, and then the word spreads. Yeah, kind of kind of surprising in some sense, right? Yeah. And so what does that do in terms of eliciting more information? So there's an informational perspective, obviously, but there's also that social perspective right. as well. Sometimes that's conformity, sometimes that's groupthink, sometimes, you know, there's all these kind of social phenomena there. Uh, and, and of course, at a broader level, there's a whole set of biases and yeah. and uh, you know behavioral decision-making or behavioral economics even. What I tried to do starting with the dissertation was really see if we can apply some of those, I don't want to say basic, but rather fundamental behavioral perspectives and see what the implications are. You know, like everything else, you, you know, you have to take a, a conventional wisdom as it may apply in, a mm-hmm. say, a general setting, and then you have to start unpeeling mm-hmm. different layers of the onion. You know, so, so what's underneath that, right? And look for the boundary conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fundamentally, uh, we always think about uh, product adoption or innovation do- adoption as a set of innovators and imitators at okay. some level, right? Mm-hmm. So if I see enough people out there buying Divix, it's like, oh, I guess I should buy Divix too, you know, whatever uh-huh. it may be, right? One implication, if you want to, you know, cross over that chasm or even avoid that sales uh, dip, if you will, is to have something of a say, a niche presence in the mainstream market or in the, quote, the imitator market or in the majority market, if you think of a consumer adoption curve. Mm-hmm. If you can kind of capture a niche in that mainstream market, then that'll begin that process mm-hmm. of kind of converting a lot of the rest of the mainstream market or majority market, if you That's will. That's interesting. Have you noticed, over time, changing trends in user behavior? Certainly. That, that gets real complicated, and and um, so I haven't researched that as much as as some other uh, some other people certainly. But well, there's this whole notion of if we use or maybe overuse technology, social media or news feeds or whatever too much, then basically what information is getting pushed to me as a consumer is stuff that's already consistent yeah. with my past habits. Right. And what you miss from that, and I think what one of your podcast speakers was talking about is that if, if, if that's your approach then you miss all of these say out, outliers of interest or mm-hmm. different subjects or broader subjects or oh you know I had, I had never really thought of that before I, you know let me read that a little bit more that's so, an interesting problem that everybody thinks about and I've always been surprised that you know the supposed intelligence behind the content <laughs> we're presented with isn't cleverer yeah well, I want to make sure that we talk about the Product Innovation Lab. Yeah. That's super cool. And um, you've been here about 10 years. Right. But that lab is 20 years old? Yeah, so the Product Innovation Lab is probably 22-plus uh, yeah. um, years now. It's been going, and, and I've been co-teaching it for the last seven or eight. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a graduate-level class that we have here at NC State. It involves MBA students, College of Design graduate students, mostly industrial design, and College of Engineering graduate students. So we have textiles occasionally. We have uh, psychology, human factor students uh, in the program occasionally. So it's just very much multidisciplinary. And the idea is, is, is a semester long, but uh, we 
uh, put them into mixed multidisciplinary teams, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and they have a, a project description that's very uh, brief, generally speaking, and it's all about a market need, and then maybe a suggestion of you know what some other people have tried or what different technologies may or may not apply to that, and then they just they go and they t- and they tackle it. Um, they got to research the market and the market need and the market opportunity thoroughly. They have to kind of identify what problems they think is worth solving and what they're going to focus on and how that feeds into their uh, design of a solution to address those issues and, and create a valuable product service that can address that, that market. And then, of course, there's all the design aspects. Right. And they have to prototype it. They have to demonstrate that it can work. They have to uh, think of the... The launch plan or the go-to-market plan it's a learning process it's a i don't want to say high stress process but they have a lot to do in just one semester yeah right do they test their prototype in some fashion they'll they 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 do and so we we don't necessarily expect um that they'll have a fully functional working prototype at the end of one semester right right uh, it depends on the project, of course, but, but but they should be able to have prototyped enough that they can demonstrate key aspects of yeah. their solution and gain confidence that's go- that it's going to work. And so usually there's multiple prototypes. So they, they may have an engineering prototype of just the electronics. So I have an electronics yeah. board that, Something more back-end-y. that yeah. is demonstrating. It's like, oh, yeah, if we have this input, we can analyze it with this output and have a feedback loop. And aha, so we know from an yeah. engineering perspective it works. And then they can have a form, say a form prototype, right? Mm-hmm. So it'll just be the outer shell mm-hmm. of the product, if you will. And they uh, can 3D print that so they can pro- prototype their, their vision or their design of the actual product. So it may be like hollow. Oh, and all electronics fit inside here and so right. on. And they can demonstrate that, you know, vis- visually in some way. And then they may have some usability prototypes as well, right? So how ultimately you have, have a product or something that's engaging with a, a user or a customer. So how is that going to work? If it's mostly, say, a, a UX or UI uh, type of a situation, then they can simulate that, prototype that, right? right? In some of the typical ways. Um, if it's a, um, so we have, uh, one team from last semester working on up above the knee prosthetic. So build your prototype and, you know, right. see how your claims of, oh, it fits better and it's easier to adjust. I mean, try it and see if that really, yeah. you know, is the case. Right. Yeah. And, and from that you discover gaps in your design and you know what to go do in terms of fixing it and making it better. And so you know, if if you if you don't have that combination of perspectives, just your ability to do all those things is just much harder. And I think at the end of the day, your your solution is compromised as, right. as a result. How do you decide what issues in the world to point students toward each semester? Yeah, so we we start with a project menu basically. A lot of times it'll come. Uh, internally, our own ideas, uh, internally from different colleges. So we've had some College of Veterinary Medicine uh, mm-hmm. projects in the past, for example. Sometimes from outside companies, at least the starting point of it, uh, or outside mentors. Yeah. You always have intellectual property things, and you know, so you just gotta, gotta you know, manage that in some case ways. Case by case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, case by case, exactly. 
Um, and then we take a combination of, of their interests and also their skills. And hey, every team has to have MBAs right. and engineers and designers. Right. And then we just seed them, right. uh, seed the class on onto a particular project then, and, and okay. off they go. That's great. The prosthetic example I just told you uh, about, that was from this past fall. And, there, right. and there's a core team that's, that's still working on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market need is really motivated by uh, developing countries where, it, it, you know, if I'm working out in, in the field and there's some kind of an accident where I had a above-the-knee amputation, I, you know, I can't go get a $70,000 prosthetic. No. <laughs> That's going to allow me That's a very first world to, keep, to yeah. keep earning, right? Yeah. And uh, so they've, and, and they've been working with some outside mentors that kind of have that as part of their mission. You know, how can we get solutions into uh, the hands of, of individuals that really need it, you know, because their whole earning potential is based upon their mobility, you know, right. uh, just as an example. Um, so how can we get something down to like, you know, 300 bucks that works? I mean, even if you take uh, fancy advanced prosthetics, sometimes you hear people say, yeah, it's great and, and, and it works really well, but after a couple of hours, it's just amazingly uncomfortable and I, I have to take, take it, it off. off, you know. <laughs> you know, so you're working 10 hours in the field and after two hours... Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just not going to... Yeah, just not, that's not a productive solution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not only the cost constraint, which but you have the usability aspect, so back to user experience. Yeah. Oh, it has to be self-adjustable, right? So yeah. I can't run to my prosthetist and have a two-hour adjusting <laughs> session no. and then go, you know... Then go back into the field. You know, go, you know so that, that's a non-starter. And then it has to be, you know, it has to be easily fitted. I think if you try to approach that, design problem. Right. How do I design a lower cost, more quote useful prosthetic? And if I tried to do that without fully understanding the user experience perspective, then I have a uninformed yeah. design, set of design criteria that ultimately isn't going to work. Yeah. Right? You're you're going to forget something. It's like, oh, after, you know, every hour I have to, you know, cuz my uh, my leg swells a little bit or, you know, whatever the case may be because I'm out in the heat and so on, you know. You know, if you don't have those kind of adjustability considerations mm-hmm. of real usage context or scenarios, it's just not it's just not going to work, right? Um, so so that, that team's uh, gotten some some uh, grant and prize awards and, and they're working on it. You That's know. great. And I think it's again, it's a good example of the benefit of having all these different perspectives together, and how, again, when you're trying to innovate a better solution, just how uh, important it is to have the user experience perspective to make it all work. I think we're always trying to figure out new opportunities, yeah. uh, not just in terms of defining the projects, but how we can not only have them better engage with each other as they work on a project, but also better engage with, say, outside yeah, uh, outside experts or outside opinions or just be able to kind of showcase yeah. what they're doing. And so we have a relationship with Riot, the Riot. Uh, internet, Riot. internet of Things. Okay. Uh, organization here in the in the Raleigh area. Mm-hmm. Go to ncriot.org. We have somebody from Riot, the, Tom Schneider, the executive director that used to work here at NC State. They help with a showcase at the end of the semester. They bring in a lot of people to kind of look at the work that they've done. 
cool. Bring in project ideas. So that's part of the course thing. is to bring riot, uh, have a sort of riot show. Yeah, so the last three years now, I think we've had a end of the semester showcase, basically poster showcase that's open. And mm. so done that with Riot and HQ Raleigh. Cool. Has been helpful with that as well uh, in terms of space and so forth. And it, it's just a nice way to get, you know, to get some, hey, what you did is really cool, you know, and there's other venues too. So the. Well, they'll probably College find of, a lot of opportunities there. Too. Right, and be able to kind of network a little yeah. bit and, and get some... Presentations. Get so. some valid... Yeah, and get a little bit of validation of the work, too, right? Yeah. And just be able to see that the process that they went through, this multidisciplinary process, the effects of that, the beneficial effects of that show. Mm-hmm. And if you get some outside you know, business experts in different industries yeah. kind of come through and see that and they say, oh my gosh, I see how the design elements of what you were working for this wearable device that does blah, blah, blah. I see how that influenced what you did, right? Mm-hmm. So when you get a outside you know, CEO from somewhere basically sharing that impression with the team, then that really solidifies, I think, for the team the value of what they did. It's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly the value that we got out of having a designer on the team or a biomed engineer, whatever whatever the, the situation may be, I think. Yeah. So we, we see that a lot. And I think hopefully the teams discover that and they discover, despite the occasional friction that you are always going to get in any kind of an innovation team or design team, Everybody's going to have different opinions and different right. uh, strategies, and you're, you're trying to pick the best direction to go. Right. But it's kind of like an accordion. You know, you have a couple of options, and you brainstorm that out to 40 options, and you yeah. narrow that down, and you try something that doesn't work, so you got to go back and so on. You know, there's just that whole flow of the, of the process that's a little bit messy. And I think if they understand that, oh, messy is part of the... <laughs> Is <laughs> part of the process, <laughs> and to get a little bit more comfortable with that, and and you know use that to their advantage as yeah. opposed to viewing it as a failure of process or yeah you know that wasn't in the standard operating procedures. What did we do <laughs> wrong? I mean, you didn't do anything wrong, right? It's part of the discovery. So yeah. Um, well, we usually like to close by asking our guests to give us a piece of advice or a blessing that they might give to somebody who's graduating or moving on to the next thing, whatever it may be. Hopefully the evolution or the process of realizing just the critical central importance of understanding and considering, say, user experience, mm-hmm. you know, it took me, you know, a couple of decades, whatever, <laughs> to really kind of understand, yeah. you know, more fully just why that's important, why that's critical. And it doesn't matter how technical you are or what your narrow, narrow role in, in a company may be in terms of your job and so on, really try to have those user connections, those mm-hmm. market connections, those customer connections, and and try as best as you can to understand how what you're doing, whatever that may be, fits into making that better. Yeah. And sometimes that can be an internal customer. If you're working on processes within your company and so yeah. on, you still have users. You still have, mm-hmm. quote, customers, even though they may be colleagues or people that you're working with who, who are down the hall, for example. And I always tell the students, you know, I don't care how good your invention is. I don't care how good your technical solution is. If it's not used, you've accomplished nothing. <laughs> you know, except a big, expensive, you know, Maybe you've learned something. <laughs> uh, paper, uh, paper, yeah. paperweight, you know, something like that. Yeah. It's like Peter Drucker and a lot of people have said before, that the test of an innovation is really in the mind 
uh, and the value derived right. from from the user. Mm-hmm. And the the more engineers can understand that, and, mm-hmm. and designers and MBAs, you know, I think the the better off you're going to be. And that's that's what we try to do. It's what I try to do in terms of thinking about innovation and different ways that we teach innovation and and some of the innovation research that I do is how can mm-hmm. we bring that intelligence about user experience more to the forefront to um, better inform our activities. Yeah. Well, thanks, John. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to the Nexus Meetup Podcast. To learn more, go to our website at nexus.ncsu.edu. That's N-E-X-U-X dot N-C-S-U dot E-D-U. You can learn more there about our monthly meetups. We're also on Twitter at Nexus underscore USA. This year's meetups and podcasts are sponsored by Eastman Chemical, LexisNexis, and KPIT. Our music was composed and performed by Ricky Hopper. This podcast was produced by me, Ariana Ewan. Thanks for listening.